Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business Show. General J- Jeffrey Schlozer, he is a longtime regular on the program, retired general with incredible experience, who always brings phenomenal insight every time he's on the program. We talk a lot about several things, not only national security and military things. We've had some great conversations uh, regarding leadership, which he is a thought leader in the leadership space, as uh, demonstrated in his uh, phenomenal book on the topic that I think has application not only for people who are interested in what goes on with government and military, but anyone who's serious serious about leadership. Uh, General, always glad to have you on the program. A little bit more about what you do now in retirement real quick, but more importantly yeah, for our audience about your book, which, again, I'm a fan of. Uh, Kevin, thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm the executive vice president of Bell Helicopter, and We've, you know, build commercial and uh, military aircraft uh, for uh, for the world. And uh, the book is called uh, Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. It's about my time leading 30,000 service members uh, in combat during the chaos of Afghanistan 2008 and 2009. It's really a story about leadership, though, in chaotic times and challenging times. And so I think it's useful for people in business. I, I certainly uh, talk a lot about it with my uh, peers now. But thanks for having me on the show. Always love having you on and always love uh, to promote that book. Talk a little bit about the, the topic that I, I almost think when the media has been reporting about what's going on with the North Korean dictator uh, visiting Russia, it, they almost sound tongue-in-cheek, tongue in my opinion. Uh, the headlines, yeah. the articles, kind of dismissive. It's a little Herbert King, Her, uh, Hermit Kingdom uh, leader coming out for fresh air. Um, it, it, uh, yet, you know, it has... Uh, I think a lot of heavy implications. You know, uh, the, the headline is that North Korean dictator set, uh, caused, caused Russian effort a just war. And, that, and that's the thing they're hopping on, like him of all people knowing what a just war looks like. And it's all nice and fun, but there's some serious implications in all this. Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, for just to remind everybody what's happened over the last uh, 48 to 72 hours is the third generation dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, took his uh, private train and traveled into uh, Russia up to the Cosmodome in the Far East there to meet with uh, President Putin of Russia. And uh, the give and take there is going to be absolutely have national security implications. Unfortunately, our media is more focused on the darn train, you know, armored bulletproof train with the uh, wine and its own hot tub and things like that. It's far more important, though, that these two dictators are meeting. Yeah, absolutely. So such a stage, you actually served um, in the, well, in the U.S. Army in South Korea and became very familiar with how things are done in uh, North Korea uh, during your two-year stint. Kind of give us a little bit of context and background based on that experience. Yeah, so, I mean, this was still during the very much of the height of the Cold War, and uh, two years there, what I learned was is that uh, North Korea had stockpiled huge amounts of uh, munitions, that's ammo, uh, you know, for their artillery as far as uh, their weapons and things of that nature, huge stockpiles of Soviet-era ammunition. That's absolutely critical now because that's what Putin needs. He has the same types of howitzers, the same artillery, the same small weapons, the same mortars, but he's ran out of ammunition fighting the Ukrainians. What he seeks from North Korea, what he seeks from King John Un, uh, is a deal. Uh, and so he wants access to all that munitions that's been stockpiled in North Korea. And what Kim Jong-un needs is high technology for his ballistic missile program, for his nuclear submarine, 
uh, or nuclear-capable submarine, and for satellites uh, to basically surveil the, the world, and, and most importantly, probably the United States as well as South Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so uh, basically continuing to fuel uh, UN's efforts to become a nuclear power, a full-fledged nuclear power. Yeah, so the I mean, so the, the the national security implications for the United States and for all of us are twofold. Uh, one, uh, with all this ammunition that he's going to get from North Korea, that's going to flow to the front lines to fight the Ukrainians. That war is going to continue to be bogged down. It's going to continue to allow the Russians to continue to fight over and over again. Another winter's coming, and I'm sure that they'll be fighting this time next year. On the other side, it's going to give the, the uh, I call this tongue-in-cheek, DPRK, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, it's that dictatorship, again, third generation of dictatorship in North Korea. It's going to give them capabilities and technology that they failed so far. They've, launched, they've tried to do two satellite launches, both have failed. Uh, their ballistic missile program is it's ongoing, but uh, the capabilities that Russia can provide that they could potentially over time strike the United States and our mainland. And so this is very significant. Uh, It's quid pro quo. Yes. And, uh, you know, and of course you've got people who are always essentially apologetic to what any of these uh, dictators do. It's bizarre to me. Uh, But their counter is going to be, come on, Russia is so much closer to uh, North Korea than what we are. And yes, they're allies now, but, you know, if North Korea gets the notion that they have enormous amount of power and can get away with things, you know, uh, Russia becomes just as vulnerable as the rest of the world, maybe more so in some respects. Talk a little bit about that reality and, and why, you know, does Putin even factor that in in, in the uh, in his thought process, in his calculations? Well, you know, I mean, again, there's there's lots of ways, I think, to uh, to try to understand Putin. But in this case... I think that this is basically a transaction. I mean, uh, you know, the communism that uh, the Soviet Union had and, and uh, the oligarchism that Russia now has is very different than what's being practiced in North Korea. So there's not a lot of ideology there. This is transactional, but it shows the weakness of the Russian military and really of the Russian military, their system of providing, you know, the capability, the means to war at this level as it's being fought in Ukraine, which, again, is... it. For most folks who read history, this is right out of World War One. maybe the worst fights of out of World War Two. It's just a huge slog with a massive amount of blood being shed and huge amounts of ammunition being fired each, each way. So it demonstrates a weakness in Russia and it demonstrates a weakness in the leadership of uh, Putin. You know, it remains, though, again, I, as I've said several times on, on your show, is, is that you got to be very careful about cornering somebody like Putin because you're never exactly sure how they're going to try to get themselves out of that corner. And so it remains to be seen how this is going to go. But again, I think what's going to happen is, is I think most of the United States, the West, Europe, and things like that are going to watch this and just watch it take place. We'll be able to watch how the ammunition actually flows into Russia. You know, almost everybody else has sanctioned uh, all the other, uh, you know, uh, countries that could supply something of this nature. And uh, so he's, he's going to the last drop to uh, try to get uh, this kind of ammunition. And again, third time generation, third generation of uh, dictatorship, excuse me. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating to see how this persists. Talk a little bit about your sense on the state of the war. This is just, uh, you know, to me, you know, my opinion, one of us is an expert, and it's not me. I read a lot and studied a lot, uh, but you've actually lived this and worked this. Um, when I look at the situation, my concern is, is that, and this was a concern I think both of us expressed early on, that the big winners of this is going to be the industry, the military-industrial complex, as Dwight Eisenhower uh, described in one of his last speeches as President of the United States. It feels a lot like that unfolding here. And, uh, you know, and there seems to be very clear demarcation lines that the U.S. is not going to get Ukraine, Ukraine over the finish line, and nor are his uh, other allies. And I don't know if they can get over a finish line without that. And so it begs the question, where, where, what is the war at now? Is this a war the U.S. should continue in? Should the U.S. have a strategic move towards heavy negotiations at this point and get this thing done? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing is, is it's basically a classic war of attrition. And unfortunately, it's, it's become that partially because of U.S. policy. Um, I mean, we decided to support the Ukraine, and I think, you know, for valid reasons, and uh, when they were invaded by Russia. Uh, this should have been no surprise. I mean, again, the Russians invaded Crimea. They invaded others, Georgia, uh, and partly Chechnya as well back in their history you know, over the last 20 years. should have been no surprise. But what we did not do is, is that we did not basically sit down and say, we're going to make sure that you win this war. Instead, what we wanted to do was make sure they didn't lose the war. And that's very different as far as national security, you know, what it means for the rest of the world. So this world, right now the way the war is done is we are providing in a basically step-by-step manner the capability to fight the war. As you know, right now F-16s are being transferred from uh, Western nations, and we're going to help train Ukrainian pilots in F-16. It will take a while before that aircraft is effective and they learn how to actually employ it in combat using combined arms maneuver. There's rumors out there that we're eventually going to give them ATACMS, which is a, basically a, a, an advanced missile system that allows, uh, um, it would allow the Ukrainians to target in the Crimea, they could target much further than they're currently able to do, maybe even targets inside of Russia, which of course has usually been a red line for this administration. My point, though, is, is this whole thing has been basically step by step. And uh, we're just trying to make sure they don't lose. We're really not trying to make sure that they actually win. And uh, that's my personal opinion, obviously. That certainly wouldn't be this administration's take on what they're doing. But Putin is is a very sage, former KGB agent. He understands what he's seeing. And he thinks he can outlast the West. He can outlast Europe. uh, And he can outlast the United States. And that's what we're seeing play out. And I think it's going to continue to be a war of attrition at least for another year before either of them are worn down, either countries are worn down enough to go to the negotiating table. And I'm not even sure you can trust Putin. As long as Putin's in trouble, he may negotiate one thing and do just the worst that you could possibly believe in action. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it looks like uh, Vietnam, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. It, and, it has, and you know <laughs> It has, yeah, it looked pretty good when we were getting out of Vietnam and we we tied that up. And frankly, there's a lot of case to be made that we probably should have never been here when you do read the Pentagon Papers. Um, But yeah, uh, he's not an honest player. There's there's no question about it. You said an interesting thing, General, where you talked about the fact that uh, uh, there. you know, hadn't made the decision to make sure they win or made the commitment for to make sure they win, only that they could fight. 
You know, and, and I think, you know, uh, Putin early on called this a proxy war. And you and I have talked about that before. Frankly, almost every war since World War II, most of them have been proxy wars. I can't recall any war since World War II where uh, the U.S. made a commitment in a proxy war to make sure that the, that the people they support get across the finish line. And it's very, I can't even really think of examples where that has happened. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Kevin. I mean, in many cases, basically, you know, major powers don't mind at all watching uh, their potential competitor or potential aggressor fight themselves into the ground against some other uh, you know, nation or watch two proxies fight themselves and, and both big major players just provide the means, the technology, the weaponry, weaponry and the munitions. It's happened many, many cases. Afghanistan, the former time, the first time uh, when we watched the Soviet Union basically wear away its army in uh, the mountains of Afghanistan and we kind of just sort of supplied on the side the Mujahideen that fought them. Uh, of course, that placed, uh, you know, eventually provided the seeds of the Taliban, who we ended up fighting, and the Soviets or then became the Russians, and they just, you know, watched us do the exact same thing that had happened to their forces. So, yeah, it happens all the time, Kevin. Actually, a great point, you know. Um, when you're actually seeing stuff like that take place, you have to really understand what's happening behind the scenes. And, and in a sense, this is competition. It's actually fighting one way or the other. You got to uh, politics rather than uh, the actual uh, means of war between uh, competitors like ourselves and the Russians. Yes, yeah. At some point, I mean, we we uh, I'd love to have a conversation with you about reforming the you know the Wars Power Act because I look at that as uh, as integral part of that problem we just described going on now for generations, and there has been efforts to change it. They've made little operations here and there, but you know the U.S. you know wins wars when it declares wars and forces Congress to get invested in it. And uh, we hadn't had that fully in this, and we haven't had this in the vast majority of the proxy wars that went on forever, endless wars, with uh, really sad results again. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, short of declaring war, which is an act of Congress, not the president, um, and then then a national mobilization to actually um, defeat, and again, the whole purpose has got to be able to win rather than to not just lose. Uh, or to rebuild a country. That's not what your army is really, and your military is made for, right? And that's what, it shouldn't be using that. And there's other things that can build countries, um, AID and et cetera. Yeah, I, I totally am on board, Kevin. I mean, I think there needs to be reformation there on the War Powers Act. There needs to be more play of, of understanding what warfare is all about. I mean, and one of the nice things I'm seeing right now, it's not nice, but one of the benefits of uh, watching some of our vets get out is, is that many of them are going into the Congress and, mm-hmm. uh, and you're going to have more experience at least when uh, the future, you know, challenges and they always, there are always future challenges to a country. Uh, when we're challenged again, or we continue to be challenged, I think you're going to see a little bit more uh, experience based decision-making in the Congress. I just wish they'd stop squabbling and get on with work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. Well, I always appreciate having you on. We could go on. We went really longer than I expected. Thank you for uh, sticking with me here because this, this is a really important topic. One, again, I think it's tre- being treated in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way uh, by the media. I say shame on them. Give your website uh, as we wrap it up. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kevin. Uh, uh, J-E-F-F 
J-E-F-F-S-C-H-L-O-E-S-S-E-R.com, jeffschlosser.com. And it'll talk to you about the book, talk about my blog. I talk about war in that blog. Yeah, thanks a lot, Blake, Kevin. Yeah, you bet. We will have that war powers act conversation because I think people really don't understand how crippling its effect has been over the uh, over the decades. Uh, I think I, I think you had to have something. You know, the, what do you do before you declare war? But we never declare war. We've never really declared war since the 1940s. Congress has not done that since you know 1941, and uh, we need to revisit right. that because it hasn't worked very well. I'm Kevin Price. This is the Price of Business. Stay tuned for more. As always, thank you, sir. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Great topic, though. I mean, yeah, it really is, and uh, very uh, opportune. It, it kills me. I, I got to tell you, I got to rush out of here and get back to work. But I, it kills me. The media is so focused on that dang train and his line selection on the train and all the, you know, the, he's got a karaoke bar inside the train. <laughs> uh, I mean. You know, I mean, but they're not focused on what the heck is happening here. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Russia's given going to give this third generation dictator the means to base, basically surveil us from uh, from space and ballistic missile technology for submarines. I mean, it, it, it's just they're focused on something completely different. You know, the darn train. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. They've somehow figured out how to make a human interest story out of it. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. Always good to talk to you, sir. I'm always a little smarter after we chat. I hope you have a great day. Okay.